Now, our first text uh, this morning is from the book of Joel. It's chapter 3, and it's actually verses uh, 9 through 21. So, Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. And just to put this in context as you're flipping there, in the book of Joel, the people have been wayward, and the Lord um, reproves them. And then you see an outpouring of, of God's Spirit upon the people. And then the passage that we're going to be reading is after that. So it is after the Lord has brought his people back to himself. Um, and we are going to see how he engages with the unbelieving nations. So let's listen here to God's word. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people, and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to the valley of Shittim. Egypt will become a waste, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. We have a very short gospel reading this morning from Matthew chapter 7. It's verses 21 through 23. It's uh, somewhat familiar verses, and it's perhaps familiar, familiar in its terror um, because it, it calls us to, to question uh, what we understand about the Lord in a good and right way. So that is Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23. Listen to God's word. This is Jesus speaking, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Amen. And then we have an epistle reading this morning, which is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 5, 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, and this is Paul talking about uh, things to come on the day of the Lord. So again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 5, 3. Listen here to God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Amen. Please take just a moment and um, silently meditate upon God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son. And Lord, we ask that you would open our minds to your word, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that you would be present and that we would receive grace through your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would be at work within us, uh, reshaping our, our thinking, um, correcting where we go astray, and directing us to you in all things. We pray all of this in the name of our Redeemer. Amen. So, just a couple weeks ago, I spoke um, and, and preached on the, the idea of a covenant prosecutor. And this morning, I'm going to speak, and kind of the topic, if you will, is the day of the Lord. And uh, I said then, and I repeat now, my intention is that both of these would, would be helpful today as we think about the Scripture, but would also be helpful as in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we will be looking at the book of Amos. Because we'll see that Amos picks up these two themes in a major way. Now as we look at the day of the Lord this morning, we need to recognize that this is a topic that has captivated God's people for, for more than three millennia. Right, that this is that the anticipation of the day of the Lord is something we see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and and has not stopped since uh, the scriptures were completed. You know, I could stand here today, and we could we could break out the timelines, we could break out history, all of uh, uh, the relevant data, um, and we could try to come up with a, a picture of what we think the day of the Lord would look like. But we ought not. 
right? Because even in the scriptures we read this morning and throughout, we, we understand that no one knows the time or the place uh, of the Lord's return. We know no one knows when the day of the Lord will come. So we might then think, well, why think about it? If we don't know, if we can't know when it's going to happen, shouldn't we just put it out of our minds? And the answer is no. And the reason we can't do that is because it's real. It's not a figment of our imagination. It, it is, uh, the, the day of the Lord is something that is to come. And because it's real, it has real consequences. For those who are in Christ, when the Lord comes, when, when we experience the day of the Lord, it will be inexpressible joy, blessing, comfort. But for those who are apart from the Lord, when they experience the day of the Lord, it will be terror and horror and awful glory of God on full display and it will do no good to them, for them. So because of, of, of those two extremes, for those who are in Christ and those who are not, we need to, to wrestle with the day of the Lord and we need to examine our own understanding. Uh, are we looking eagerly for the coming of Christ? Are we looking eagerly for His return? And if so, do we have good reason to? By that I mean, where do we understand that our righteousness comes from? And, and we'll discuss that further. So simply put, I'm going to define the day of the Lord as the day that the Lord comes in judgment. And we heard Paul describe that in his letter to the Thessalonians. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 14, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Note his primary concern here. You know, as time goes on, the Lord Jesus has died, he's risen again, and he's ascended into the heaven, and he says that he's returning. And as, as time goes on, people will wonder, when is the Lord going to come back? In fact, we still wonder, when is the Lord going to come back? But as time would have gone on and, and people would have begun to, to die, I think people would have asked a natural question. Did Great Aunt Bessie die before Jesus came back because she wasn't good enough? Like, why did she die before he returned? And Paul is writing to, to allay fears and to describe to the people in Thessal Thessalonica what is going to happen when the Lord Jesus returns. He says that the people that are going to be living, right, are going to, well, they're, they're going to be living. But those who have passed away, those that have fallen asleep, those that have died, who are in Christ, will be raised, right? So that they will be first with the Lord, and those that remain will be caught up in the air with them. And what do we know? Paul describes that those that have died and those that are remaining will live with the Lord forever. That's the hope. That's the comfort. And it, in these verses carry the same comfort for us today that they would have done in Paul's day as he was addressing the people in Thessalonica who had lost loved ones. Have you lost loved ones? Those who... who dear saints in the Lord who are no longer living, perhaps they were parents, siblings, kids, 
friends, neighbors, whomever. You know, our hearts, when we, when we think about those that we love that are no longer here because they are with the Lord, it's bittersweet. It's sweet because we understand that they're no longer in pain. It's sweet because we, we understand that, that they are not dealing with the realities of a fallen, broken, suffering world. But it's bitter because we realize and we acknowledge that all the days of our life, we will not be with them. And the joy, the fun, the, the, the wonder at our loved ones and our relationship with them is broken as long as they are dead and we are alive. Paul is saying to, to us, those who are in Christ, you have hope. Though your loved one is gone, you'll see them again. You don't have to grieve as those without hope. But we also then have to acknowledge the difficult reality that there are people who grieve without hope, and that is those who do not know the Lord, and those that have died not knowing the Lord. And as we think about those dying without knowing the Lord, and we recognize that we don't know the, the day of our own death, let alone anyone else's, it has to give us a sense of urgency. We need to recognize that we are sinners. We need to recognize that we are in desperate need of the Lord Jesus. And so it, it is a call for us to reflect on our own understanding. How do we understand who Jesus is? Do we believe in him? Or are we seeking to be righteous on our own? Those are ideas we have to reckon with and we have to look to the Lord Jesus. Now, we also see in the verses that were read that the day of the Lord is spoken of differently in different areas of the scripture. That doesn't mean that they're con contradictory. That means that we see different areas of focus. And so, whereas Paul is writing to the Thessalonians trying to encourage them in the Lord when, when their beloved uh, family members die in the Lord, we also need to, to see what Joel describes uh, as the day of the Lord. Here you see the Lord calling the nations to war. At, at first, as I, as I thought about this, I was kind of thinking that somehow the Lord is making his own, uh, uh, you know, the armies of Israel strong when it says, you know, even the weak say I am strong. But as I, as I look at that and as I, as I call you to look at, at uh, Joel 3, 9 through 11, we see that the Lord is calling the nations, not his own people, to battle. And he's not calling them to battle like, come on, like, like, come join the winning side. Rather, the Lord is calling them to battle because these people are enemies of the Lord and they are enemies of God's people. And we see that, that the Lord is calling them to battle to fight against them. And as I reflect on that, I even wonder, why would you go? Right? Well, one is, you know, we don't know how such a, a, a decree would come, but you know, I, I have to imagine if in some visionary way or in you know, prophetic way I received instruction to go and fight against the Lord, I would say no. But nonetheless, you know, the Lord says, assemble! And these nations all around uh, Israel uh, begin to assemble. So much so that there aren't swords. And the Lord says, take your farm tools, make them into weapons, because there's going to be a battle. 
But what happens in this battle? The Lord is calling these nations, these nations that have rejected him, these nations that have hated his people, he's calling them to judge them. It's the day, when this takes place, it's the day of the Lord for these nations. And we see the, the, the extreme language that the Lord uses in verses 15 and 16. There, Joel writes, the sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and his voice is from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth tremble. When the Lord is judging these nations, it's as though the world is literally falling apart. There's no more light. The, the, the heavens tremble. The earth trembles. This is the language that Joel is using to describe those who, Paul says, grieve. This is the language that, that Joel is using to describe those who have no hope in Christ. He goes on, and we can praise the Lord, that, to describe the Lord as a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel, right? That, that for those who belong to the Lord, the day of the Lord is a wonderful thing where we are, are brought in to be with the Lord forever. And we can say hallelujah. But we also recognize that for those that are not in Christ, those that do not belong to the Lord, it is awful and terrible. It's something we need to wrestle with. It's something that we need to wrestle with, not just for our own lives, but also for the lives of those around us. Do our friends, our neighbors, folks around us know about the day of the Lord? Have they responded um, to Christ? Now, as we think about this idea of the day of the Lord, you know, Paul is clearly presenting this as the, the return of Christ, and that is good and right. That is the day of the Lord when Christ will come and judge all people. But we also recognize down through the ages that in small ways the Lord has visited nations and peoples in judgment. Pastor John, uh, before his retirement, worked through Revelation. And one of the, the points he tried to draw out of the book of Revelation is that down through the ages, even after you know, the New Testament was finished, nations rise and fall. And they, when, when they do so, it is often under the judgment of the Lord. Within the scriptures, we see this. Um, I think one of my favorite examples of this, um, and it's favorite not because it's just a rip-roar in good time, but because you see the, the glory of God on full display, is in Daniel chapter 5. Now, just by way of context, I'll say that Daniel chapter 5 is when Nebuchadnezzar's uh, um, son took the, the, the elements out of the temple, right? Or Nebuchadnezzar took the elements, but he took the, the goblets, the plates, all the things that were supposed to be in the temple to be used for worship, and he took them to a party. And from the description that we're about to read, it kind of sounded like a frat party. He didn't, he didn't honor the Lord as Nebuchadnezzar did. 
And we see that the Lord pronounces a judgment upon the nation um, in, in part because of what the king had done. So, uh, you know, Daniel 5 begins this way. It says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So just think about that. They took the elements that were supposed to be for the worship of the Lord and you say my golden goblet and we, we're going to take it to the party over here and rather than praise the Lord for whom the goblet was intended, we're going to praise the God of gold because the goblet's made of gold. Right? And we see just the utter nonsense, the way that Belshazzar has turned what is good on its head, and we see that the Lord judges them. Now, we see that it's, a, it's an amazing and, and glorious act of judgment. We see, you know, you probably remember that all of a sudden a hand shows up. And just to be clear, it's a hand with no arm or body or head. Right? It's just a hand. And, and it makes a mark on the wall and nobody can read it. And finally, um, the, the king brings out Daniel. Um, and, and Daniel is able to interpret it. And, and this is what he says. The hand was sent from him, that is God, and this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mina, Mina, Tekel, Ufasin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mina, God has numbered your kingdom and put, it, uh, put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found division. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. On that night, the Lord executed this judgment. The Medes and the Persians came in, destroyed the high places, killed the king, and took over the kingdom. Now we might look at that, and we, you know, sometimes in our, our modern sensibilities we say, well one is a hand floating in the air that carves a message, that's kind of weird and icky. But then we also say things like, man, the guy didn't get any warning. But that's not true. Were we to read you know, the, the, the prophets throughout, we see that the Lord provided his covenant prosecutors to say, Babylon, repent. Babylon, this is not right. Don't do this. Or, or you're going astray. But Belshazzar and the Babylonians did not heed the Lord. And we see that the Lord pronounces judgment. Were we to look at some of the other passages in Daniel, you'll see that, that Daniel understands that, that what is happening to Babylon is part of a rising and falling of nations that is going to happen through the ages until the kingdom of God is established. The day of the Lord comes through time to nations when the Lord executes his judgment upon them. Joel says, you know, th their iniquity was full, right? 
And that's not the only place. We see Abraham uh, as he is wandering the, the, the promised land. You know, you're not going to take possession of it yet. Why? Because the people that are there, their, their iniquity is not yet full. But we see that the day of the Lord comes upon the Canaanites uh, several hundred years later. The, de- the Lord judges the nations through time. We also see that the Lord judges individuals through time, right? Um, the, the, the day of the Lord will come to nations, but it will also come to individuals. One of the clear examples of that is in um, the, the narrative of David and Goliath. And I'll read part of what David says as he goes to Goliath because it's important for us to, to think about as individuals. David responding to Goliath says, you, came, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth. And this is the critical part. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. This is the day that the day of the Lord came to Goliath. The Lord executed his judgment upon him. And you you might say that and you say, well, really? I mean, are you sure that David just didn't win? Well, one is we see that no, the Lord is saying this is going to happen so that Israel will know. And we see other parts of Scripture, specifically Psalm 9:16, that ties this together, where it says, The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his hands, the wicked is snared. What does that mean? That means that when the Lord makes himself known, as he did to Goliath, he is judging Goliath, the individual in a similar fashion or an analogous fashion to the way that he judges the nations. And to be clear, the knowledge of who God is, does Goliath no good because he's dead? Right? So as we think about the day of the Lord, We need to recognize that both nations and individuals will all face judgment. We also need to remember that none of us know the time and place that the the Lord has set apart for us, right? The Lord has numbered our days. We don't number them ourselves. We don't know the day of our death. We don't know the day of anybody else's, right? So what is our response? It has to be that we need to look to the Lord Jesus. It has to be that we need to, as an individual, examine our own understanding of the Scriptures. We need to understand our own understanding of who the Lord is and who He has called us to be. Why? Because as the Lord is executing judgment upon the nations, He's doing it because they've rejected Him. He's doing it because they have said, we don't want you. He's doing it because they have often received the oracles of God, the the, the scriptures, the word of God, 
And they've said no. We need to not do that. As individuals, we can't, uh, we can't do that. We also need to examine our own understanding uh, of what grace is. You know, as I, as I think about this, um, you know, I think about our, our confession of sin that we will be saying together in a few minutes. Um, do we recognize that we are sinners? Do we recognize that we are in desperate need of grace? Or, or on the other hand, are we reveling in our sin? Have we made peace with it? Or, or do we tolerate it? You know, as I, as I look at church history, as I look at, at um, the saints that the Lord has given us um, that, that help us understand the nature of our sin and the nature of Christ's grace, one name that sticks out to me is John Owen. Um, he was a Puritan theologian and he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And that's a big fancy title that basically says, Christian, what is your relationship to sin? Because you need to be putting it to death. And as he uh, reflected on that, um, as he reflected on the nature of sin and the way that, that sin works within people, this is what he writes. He said, he said, sin doth not only still abide in us, it is still acting. It's laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. What does that mean? It means that sin's within us, continuing to work to, to make more sin, right? And then he goes on to say, if then sin will always be acting, if we are not always mortifying, killing it, if we're not saying no to sin, we're lost creatures. And he finishes then saying, this is not a day, th there is not a day, but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on. And it will be so while we live in this world. So as we think about the scriptures, as we think about how the Lord has called us, as we, we hold in view the fact that there is a day of the Lord for individuals and nations, what do we think of our sin? Have we made peace with it? Or are we saying no to it by God's Holy Spirit? Because we cannot do it on our own. This is where I believe the, whole, the, you know, the, the Lord Jesus makes this point extremely explicit in the Sermon on the Mount. As he's talking about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God um, and, and to, to live in relationship to one another, he says, um, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now these words are difficult. Why? Because we have to acknowledge that there's a group of people that think that they're okay. That, that understand themselves to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And on the last day, on the day of judgment, when they go to stand before the judge, the judge is going to give them a verdict that they were not expecting. They're going to think they're okay, but the Lord says, depart from me. Now, the Lord Jesus says, those who will enter are those who do the will of his Father. But before we say, okay, so Jesus is just saying, 
you know, put sin down, do what is good. Ah, got it. I can check those boxes. I can, I can work on that. I mean, it'll take me a little while, but I'll get at it. We need to recognize that Jesus is not calling us to, to deeds in that way. Why? Because what do the people do? They say, Lord, look at all the things we've done. Look at the amazing things I've done in your name. And the Lord says, no, you're practicing lawlessness. So what you thought was good wasn't. Well, what is going on here? I think what's going on here is that Jesus is, is saying here and in the, the verses surrounding that the one who does the will of the Father, right, is the one who follows Christ. It's the one who recognizes that of their own ability, they cannot please God. It's the, it's the, it's the one who of his own ability says, I am nothing and looks to the Lord Jesus for righteousness. That is what the scriptures call us to do throughout. And in light of the day of the Lord, each of us as individuals must come to terms with that. Lest we, like the person in Matthew 7, come to the day of judgment and the Lord says, depart from me, I never knew you. But beyond that, we, we've looked even this morning that the day of the Lord doesn't just come to individuals, it comes to nations. And so how do we work through the idea that the, the day of the Lord is coming to a nation? What, what might that mean? What are the criteria that the, that the Lord might judge a nation by? Well, I mean, we could do lots of things there. We could look uh, throughout the prophets in the weeks to come. I pray that we're going to see some of this in the book of Amos. But for this morning, I'm going to present two verses from Jeremiah. The first is from Jeremiah 2.13. And it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So nations, are you forsaking the Lord? Are you seeking to, to, to make your own way with your own cistern, your own righteousness, your own power, your own strength? And I won't just say that to the nations as a whole. I'll say that to our nation. Have we rejected the Lord and tried to make our own way? I don't see how we could look around us at the world and the chaos we see and conclude anything else. The other verse from Jeremiah is Jeremiah 6.16 and this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your soul. So that's the, the good command. And we can say what is the ancient way? Well. It's, it's the good way, right? It's the way that, that is well, well trodden. It's, it's the word of God. But what do the people say? We will not walk in it. Again, as a nation, where are we? I don't think we're in the first part of that verse. I think we're in the second. Right? We will not walk in it. Last year, we, we memorized uh, Psalm 8, right? And, and why are the nations in an uproar? This is the answer, right? They, they are seeking to cast off the Lord. 
We see that in our own land, and it is not good. So what's the solution? What do we do? Well, we need to recognize that, you know, we are not able to, to make someone believe in the Lord. We, we cannot give faith. We cannot force faith in an individual, much less can we do so on, on a national scale. So what can we do? We need to pray. We need to be people of prayer, right? Praying that the Holy Spirit would do a work amongst the people, not just of Lydie's church, not just of Soderton and Pennsylvania, but our nation and indeed our world. We need to be a people who continually pray for our leaders. Pray that they would be surrounded by godly counsel. Folks who would, would understand the days with knowledge of what we should do, with knowledge of how to follow the Lord. We should also make every effort you know, uh, to communicate the love of Christ to those around us. You know, it, and it's going to be different for everyone. Perhaps it's your family members, perhaps it's your, your co-workers, your students, your teachers. You know, and there are a number of ways that you can do that, but, but we are to, called to, to make Christ known. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming for us as individuals and as a nation. We don't know when it's going to be, but we can be assured that it is coming. So let us pray and let us seek to proclaim Christ as far and as wide as we might. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you in the midst of a broken and fallen world. We come to you in the midst of a um, nation in some amount of chaos. We pray that you uh, would send your spirit that you would bring about revival in the land, and that you would send your spirit uh, amongst us to give us a heart for those who do not know you, that we might uh, remember that your day is coming, and in it uh, both individuals and nations will be judged. May we, in light of that, uh, seek to communicate your love um, wherever you would have us. Amen.